All right, welcome to New Life Church. How many people love Jesus today? Yeah. Good. It is Christmas time. I am so excited. How many are excited that it's finally Christmas? How many are dreaming of a white Christmas? You're hoping it snows this week? Man, family and friends and celebrating Jesus, it's the best time of the year. I want to welcome everybody who's worshiping with us at all of our campuses and those that are joining us online. Maybe uh, you're still worshiping at home or maybe you're checking out church. You're new to one of our communities and you are doing the try before you buy deal, which a lot of people do and watching us online. We hope that God speaks to you today. But let me just tell you, as soon as you can make it to one of our in-person services, the secret sauce of New Life Church is Jesus and then the people that make up new life. And so come and get connected to one of our campuses as soon as you're able to. And so how many people love to dream? You love dreams. Anybody have a dream last night, all of our locations online? Did anybody have a dream last night that you can remember? I love to have those happy good dreams that when you wake up, you know, it takes you a moment to figure out that it was a dream, that it's not real. You know what I'm talking about? And you try to quickly get back to sleep to continue the dream because you always wake up when the dream is getting really good. Those kind of dreams. How many of you have had or you have currently dreams for your life, conscious dreams, you know, desires, ambitions, goals, things that you want to do. You have an ideal of what life might look like. Maybe it's to get married and have a family or a certain type of career or to live at a certain place or, or something to do with relationships or, or ministry or being involved in, in other types of things. You have these conscious types of dreams and ideals for your life. How many desire to have a wonderful life for yourself and for your family. At all of our locations, raise your hand. I, I want to have a, hopefully you have that desire that you want to have a wonderful life. And that is a great segue to the greatest movie of all time, the greatest Christmas movie, but also the greatest movie of all time, my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life. How many love It's a Wonderful Life? You've seen that movie? I love that movie. From the time that George Bailey was a young boy, he had incredible dreams for his life, things that he wanted to do and accomplish, dreams that were bigger than where he lived and dreams that were bigger than the family business. His father, Peter Bailey, ran a building and loan, and it wasn't to get rich, it was to help families in the pre-depression era to get out of poverty and, in fact, buy their own home, and that's how he lived, but George didn't want to have anything to do with the family business. Check this out. Down the street. Okay, then I'll throw a rock at the old grand. Can't you come out George had amazing dreams to leave home, to see the world. He says, I'm going to shake the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and see the world. He dreams to go to college and to become an engineer and to, to make money and a name for himself and have all these experiences. By the way, this message is a complete spoiler for this entire movie if you haven't seen it. I'm just going to give you a heads up. In another small town that many Nebraskans can relate to, a town called Bethlehem, I want to tell you the story of another woman in the Christmas story. Can you guess what her name is? Anybody? Anybody say Naomi? No, many of you said Mary. 
I'm going to tell you the story of Naomi. Many of you maybe have heard about Naomi, but you never connected her to the Christmas story. Maybe you don't even know her. So let me tell you the wonderful life story of this woman named Naomi. In Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. And so Naomi and her family, they're Hebrews. They've served Jehovah God. They served the God of the Bible. And they lived in Bethlehem, a town that many of you are familiar with, especially around Christmas time. You know of Bethlehem in Judah. And she was a Hebrew. She served God. And she noted that Dad had dreams for her family, just like any other mother would have dreams, to raise her children, to raise them with a provision, in peace, in health. And for her, especially, to raise her family among her people and to worship the God that she loved. But there was a famine in the land, so she had to take her family and move to a place 10 days' journey away called Moab. Now, the Moabites, they hated the Hebrews. There was this racism and there was this discrimination against their religion. They, didn't, they served these other gods. and So there was this tension between the two people. But for whatever reason, they were able to settle in Moab where there was food and there was work and provision. So here she is, a Hebrew. She had to uproot her family, her husband, two sons, and move away. And live among a people that didn't like her, her race, in fact, hated her. And it goes on to say this in verse 3. Now, Limelech, her husband, he died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So I want to ask you to put yourself into her shoes She's had to leave home because of a famine. Probably many of you have not had to do that, but try to put yourself into her shoes. And she's a they've established themselves in this other community that didn't like them, but they are established now to the point where her sons have married Moabite women, but then her husband dies, and at some point, then the two sons die, and we don't know necessarily in this text how they died, but now she's a widow, with two widow women daughters-in-law. And life is not so wonderful from the outside looking in. In fact, we'll see in a moment that for Naomi, this was not the wonderful life that she wanted. It wasn't the wonderful life that she anticipated. Life's not so good. We catch back up with George Bailey. You remember his dreams to leave home and to make something of himself. And now he's a, he's a young man finally about to leave home to go on the trip to see the world and then to go to college when suddenly and unexpectedly his father dies his father again he's the owner of the building and loan and George worked there and now they're trying to decide what to do and the antagonist in the movie 
if you've seen it, is Henry F. Potter. He is the richest and meanest man in the county, and he wants to shut down the building and loan. And so there's this scenario that's happening in the film where the board meetings along, the board members along with Mr. Potter, they're meeting, trying to decide what to do with the building and loan, and look what happens. Hey, you'll miss your train. You're weekly for school already. Otherwise... So they vote to keep the building and loan going on one condition that George takes over the business. And we see these admirable qualities in George Bailey of self-sacrifice and putting others before himself while this undercurrent is going on in his life of having these ambitions and dreams. He said, this is my last chance, but the transition to the scene, we find out that George does stay and takes over the building and loan and he gives his money to his younger brother to go off to college and the plan was that his brother would go to college and then come back and take over for George and finally George would get to live out the dreams of his life but his brother comes back from college with a surprise he has a new wife and a new job offer and once again George Bailey puts others before himself and he allows his brother to have the wonderful life that he wants and he stays in his mind stuck in this town in this position of leading the building and loan, not living the wonderful life that he wanted. Let's talk about the wonderful life that God has designed and prepared for you, the purpose and plan that he has in mind for your life. Now, here's what I believe. I believe that God created each and every one of you, that he created you with a purpose and plan in mind. In fact, before he ever even created all of the planets and the earth and all of creation, he had you in mind. The Bible says he focused on you as the object of his affection. All of your days are outlined and he has a strategic purpose and a plan for your life. In fact, I would go so far as to say he intends that you would have a wonderful life. And the wonderful life that God has for you, it cannot be separated though from his purpose and his plan for you. In fact, the only way for you to have a wonderful, a truly wonderful life is for you to find and fulfill God's purpose for your life. But here's the problem for all of us, regardless of the situation that you're in, your past, your present. For some of us, life smothers out the dreams that God has planted the purpose that he has for our life. So his dreams lay dormant. God's dream for you lays dormant. It's lifeless. Maybe at one time a long ago, that dream was alive and well, and you sensed the purpose of God for your life. But life has happened, happened and it seems very distant, something that seems to have slipped through your fingers. Maybe for others, God's purposes are smothered by your own desires, such as George, your desires to define your life and your purpose and your existence. And the ambition that you have is really separate from a relationship with God and His purposes. For others, you, you feel disillusioned or maybe even wounded because of what life has dealt you and what maybe you see as God allowing to come your way and life doesn't seem all that wonderful at all. So here's the question I want you to just kind of wrestle with. How would you define for you? How would you define a wonderful life? Is it like Naomi, whose her very name means pleasant? Is it like Naomi to have a pleasant life, free from struggles and hardships, to raise your family 
in health, to not have to bury your sons, but to, to raise your family and, and maybe to be around your family and your friends and to worship God? Is it like George? To see the world, to make a name for yourself, to experience everything that your heart's desires, to succeed, to make a lot of money. And then what do you do when life doesn't seem to go the way that you planned it, the way that you hoped, the way that you dreamed? What do you do? So Naomi, she hears that back in Bethlehem, her hometown, things have taken a turn, that God has been gracious and God has blessed them. And there's, now there's provision, there's food, there's work in, back in Judah. And she sets out to return home. But at some point on the journey, we don't know why, but she decides to try to encourage her daughters-in-law, who are Moabites, to go back to Moab, to go back to their people and to their gods. And one of the daughters, Orpah, through tears, decides to go back to her own family, but Ruth makes another decision. It says this in verse 16. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And I want you to capture what's going on now in this person, this young woman named Ruth, because it's going to be strategic to the rest of the message today. She makes this decision I'm not going to go back to Moab. I'm going to go where you go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So they continue the journey to Bethlehem. And as they come into the town, remember Naomi's been gone for at least 10 years that we know of. And the people are stirred, the Bible says, by these two women. There's no men with them. And in, in that day, when you were a widow and you didn't have, your family took care of you, well, remember, they didn't have any family. The sons had died. And so here are these two women, these widow women, but also they began to recognize this woman. But they, there was something different about her to the point where they asked, is this really Naomi? Could this be? Is this her? As if there's something different about her. And we find out in our next passage of Scripture what was different about her. Naomi hears all this and here's what she says. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So I want you to imagine she's coming into town. They're like, could this be Naomi? Which means pleasant. And she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. She says, I'm no longer the woman that you used to know. This is what's happened to me. I went away in blessing and I come back and God's taken everything away from me. And she was, she was confessing to everybody, I have grown bitter. It's almost as if you could hear her say to herself, I wish I had never been born. Call me Mara. George Bailey, he finds himself in a similar situation in that he's at the end of his rope. Through a crisis that happens in the movie, there's a warrant out for his arrest and everybody's against him. He, he in fact, believes that God won't hear him. He prays a prayer that God would get him out of this situation. And the next moment, Mr. Welch, the teacher's husband punches him in the face and gives him a bloody lip. And he sees that as the God's response to his prayer. 
So God has abandoned me. Life is against me. I'm about to get arrested and go to prison. He's at the end of his rope and he finds himself on a bridge. Getting ready to take his own life. And then God steps in in the film. Through an angel named Clarence Oddbody. And Clarence rescues George and prevents him, saves him from taking his own life. And Clarence is sent to try to convince George that his life is worth living. Watch what happens. So George says, I wish I'd never been born. And Clarence grants him that wish. And then George begins to experience what his life in Bedford Falls would be like had he never been born. As he makes his way around town, his, his own wife doesn't even recognize him. Of course, then his children were never born. His brother, Harry, who when he was nine years old, George saved and rescued him after he fell through the ice when they were sledding one day. His brother died at the age nine. The transport of soldiers that his brother would later rescue in the war, they all died because George wasn't there to save Harry. All of chaos is broken out because now Mr. Potter is in control of everything and you see chaos and you see wild living in Bedford Falls. And George begins to process and see that his life really did make an impact and things that he couldn't see before, that all of his dreams and ambitions to leave clouded his ability to see the wonderful life that he truly had. And George starts to realize that he wasn't seeing the big picture. And so Clarence, the angel, in fact, says to him at one point, you see, George, You've really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be just to throw it all away? So Naomi, who now wants to become Mara and Ruth, they begin to live their lives back in Bethlehem. And there was this rich farm owner named Boaz. And so one day, again, they're widow women. And one day Ruth says, I'm going to go to the field during harvest time, and I'm, hopefully they will, the workers will allow me to follow them as they're harvesting grain and glean in the field to pick up the leftovers. And this man, this rich man named Boaz, he notices her, and he's moved with compassion, and he feeds her, and he gives her food. And then look what he does. This is a hot tip for those of you guys that want to get a date. Check out what Boaz does. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some of the heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So he says compassion. How many know that it's a little more than compassion, right, that, uh, that he sees in Ruth? But God starts to have grace upon Naomi and Ruth, and now we begin to see provision. And for Naomi, who wanted to become Mara, life begins to get better, but she never got to see the true impact of her life after her death that George Bailey got to see of her, his life before his death. George got a chance in the film to see the impact of his life. And for you, you might be walking through a season like George Bailey and life's not all that you hoped it would be. Or maybe life has dealt you something you don't know how to get out of it and you don't see the purpose of your existence. 
of your life. You don't see the purpose that God designed you for, the wake that you're supposed to leave, the legacy through others that you're supposed to have. Maybe you feel like Naomi, and life has brought you to a place where you are bitter. Your pain seems pointless. And you know, God may allow you to clearly see the impact of your life. He may offer you an expression of His grace that you can clearly see how your life has purpose. But you might not get an angel to show you so clearly. You might not have an angel show up to say, here's the purpose of your life. But what you do have and what God has offered you is faith. Faith to trust Him. Faith in His character. To find out that He is a good God. That He has a purpose and plan for your life. And even in the pain, that He is not absent. That He is involved. He is intricately involved in every single circumstance of your life. You see, before George's crisis... And before Clarence, the angel shows up, all George sees is the other life that he wishes that he had, his own personal dreams and ambitions. And he began to have this claustrophobic feeling of the things that were out of his control. He wasn't seeing the big picture, the picture that God sees, the plan that God had for his life. But finally, he gets a glimpse in the movie of the bigger picture. And if you know the story, George has this conversion experience. He has a moment where there's a desire to live out his purpose, to embrace it in spite of the pain, in spite of everything that was happening in his life, and back on the bridge where he was contemplating taking his own life, he prays that he would live again, and his prayer is answered. And when he discovers that his life has been given back to him, look at his response. I love that iconic scene as something shifts when you begin to see the value in the purpose of your life. You even see the things that you despised before as a blessing. Come on now, that is the greatest Christmas movie ever. Anybody with me? Some of you need to go home and watch it. So things are getting better for Ruth and Naomi. But let me just accelerate the story for you, encourage you to read it on your own. But let me give you the cliff notes. As you could have guessed, Boaz marries Ruth. And through their union, Boaz and Ruth, they have a son. Guess what his name is? His name is Obed. Now, Obed has a son. His name is Jesse. Jesse has a son named David who sat on the throne of Israel. And if you trace that lineage down, you'll find yourself on a starry night in Bethlehem. Angels and shepherds and wise men and the Son of God, Emmanuel himself, God with us. Through this chaotic story of Naomi who had to go to Moab. And why did God do it that way? I don't know. But he brought her out of the situation and took her to Moab so that her son can marry this Moabite woman named Ruth. And then God allowed that her son, her son and her, her husband would die so that Ruth would come back to Bethlehem so that Ruth would meet Boaz. And then we get Jesus. 
You ever wonder, you ever contemplate that the things that are going on in your life, that there's a bigger picture, that God is orchestrating something that you maybe cannot see so clearly right now? The final players in the Christmas story that I want to tell you about. Many of you know this story very clearly if you've been to church. And it is this time the woman named Mary and another angel. And you'll see a different response in Mary to the purposes of God for her life. In the middle of an engagement, she is betrothed to be married to Joseph, this young teenage girl. And look what happens in her life in Luke chapter 1. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. I mean, talk about a detour in the plans of your life. Right? But instead of becoming bitter or frustrated that God had chosen her for this truly amazing thing, but a life altering type of thing, she responds, as we'll see, in a profound way. And the worry of her husband divorcing her, ending the engagement, with the, which at that time would be called divorce of her becoming an outcast because who is going to believe this story that she's pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit? But we can take a cue from Mary in a response. Look what happens. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. God had an incredible, wonderful life for Mary, but this detour that was presented that you're going to become pregnant with the Messiah And who's going to believe it had to be stirring in her heart. But no, her reaction instead of despair, instead of, man, this is not what I planned. I planned to to marry Joseph and we would have our family and we wouldn't have all this attention and all the chaos and all the... Instead of that, she says, God, may your will come about in my life. See, we don't always see the big picture. We get consumed with our own desires and our own dreams and our own ambitions. We might even try to define our life and our purpose based on things that have nothing to do with our relationship with God. We have our own dreams and desires. Sometimes when we're young and we think about the person we want to marry, we we don't even include God in that decision. We just go based on our own emotions and our own intellect and we just follow the path out. God has grace on us through all, through all of that, but what it, would it be like if we truly embraced and trusted that God is the one who designed our life and he is better than us at calling the shots and making the choices? Some of you might be going through a season, the season might be a long season of wondering, what is the purpose of the pain in my life? Now there's a pain in our life that's of our own creating, it's when we willfully choose to sin. And we reject God's way. And through our own sin, there's consequences that we we face. Let me just tell you, for you, there's mercy and grace if you come to Jesus. 
But for the Christ follower, he doesn't promise that your life will be free from pain and suffering. In fact, he says that through our suffering, we have the greatest depth of communion with Jesus. But in the midst of our suffering, there can be peace that passes understanding and an unreal sense of purpose. Some of you might be walking through pain or wondering what is the purpose of your life. Some of you listening online at one of our locations You might be right now in a season like I was at one time in my life of contemplating ending your own life. Let me just tell you that God loves you. Psalm 139 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God knit you together in your mother's womb. That you are not an accident. And whether it's your own choices or things that that are out of your control, God sees you and he wants to rescue you. He wants to give you a sense of purpose. You simply surrender to him and trust that he has a purpose and a plan for your life. God has a big picture that he sees that we don't always see. Sometimes we think that we have an A plan for our life, but we've been dealt a B plan or a C plan or a D plan or a Z plan. But because we don't see the big picture, it just might be that God is writing a script that we don't understand, that there's an impact that our life is making that we, need, that we don't really understand, even for generations to come, that he has designed our purpose to make an impact, that that B plan just might be God's A plan for your life. So this Christmas, can I just encourage you to trust the God who designed you, who created you, who planned your purpose, who sees the big picture. Lean into him. And instead of becoming bitter, let God's peace, his healing balm of peace, like reign in your life. Before you leave today, one of all of our campuses, before you leave, before the sun goes down, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, today is the day. To surrender to him. Would you all stand with me at all of our locations? God, we thank you that you sent your son 2,000 years ago. God, you yourself left heaven and you set out on a rescue mission to save us from the fate of our sin. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you that he is, your word says, called Emmanuel, God with us. That we might have you yourself, God, living inside of us by faith. So God, I pray that today we would see that you are the God who is in control. That you are not absent, you're not apathetic, that you care. For, I pray for my friends that are followers, they are followers of Christ and but life doesn't seem to make sense, would you begin to reveal a deeper level of trust to them? Grow their faith. Your word says you're the perfecter of faith. May we see with eyes of faith to trust you that all of the circumstances of our life, aside from our own sinful behavior, all of the circumstances, Lord, nothing comes our way without permission from you. And we can trust you because you're good. I pray for my friends that don't know you today in an intimate relationship way, a saving way, that before they leave, before the sun goes down, that today they would surrender to you. And I pray that this Christmas would be the most meaningful 
Christmas of all of our lives, there would be an eruption of worship because you are the greatest gift and you have offered us the most wonderful life through your Son. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. We worship you. Amen.